0: And as they're going, uh, let's pray together. Oh, Lord Jesus, we have sung, Lord, great truths that we need. Lord, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Lord, freedom to serve you in the ways that you call and equip and empower Lord, as we have prayed for Travis, Lord, I pray for great freedom, Lord, as he uh, participates in the revitalization of the church uh, in the Mount Pleasant area. Lord, we know that um, in many places in our culture, the the church, Lord, is, is not growing, not moving the kingdom forward, but Lord, your spirit is continuing to invite us, Lord, to follow you into mission. Lord, to follow you. Into, uh, into our daily lives, in the places that we work and live and play, Lord, in the neighborhoods in which we inhabit. And Lord, we need to be tuned into your spirit. Lord, it was just weeks ago that we celebrated Pentecost, that great day in history, Lord, when you turned the tide. Lord, when those disciples went from cowering in fear in their homes, Lord, to declaring your praises out in public. Lord, you empowered and equipped them to speak all of the languages, Lord, so that everyone gathered in that place could hear your word. And Lord, you have gathered people from so many nations, Lord, into our area here. Lord, from each of these nations, you have called people and you have gifted and equipped. Lord, I pray that we would experience the freedom of being moved into mission, that we would hear your spirit, that we would respond And Lord, as we open up your word together today, I pray, Lord, just just as those disciples walking on that road to Emmaus, as the word was opened to them by you, Lord Jesus, and their hearts began to burn within them, Lord, and their minds were opened, Lord, we pray that that would be our experience this day. For your glory, amen. Well, I don't know if you heard, but there was a lot of complaining going on this week, especially by residents of the city that often call them, you know, call it the Big Apple. The Big Apple being the, the biggest and the best. But New York City's claim to fame this week was having the worst air quality in the world. Smoke from forest fires in the in the Great White North had many New York City residents seeing red. And uh, yeah, and blaming Canadians and feeling as if, that's what the headline said, blame Canada, yeah, and feeling as if the situation was apocalyptic. It's one thing, I think, to make and watch apocalyptic movies for entertainment. It is quite another when one begins to experience it, at least an aspect of it in real life. Even the great symbol for the land of the free and the home of the brave was barely visible through the smoke-filled harbor. And as I looked at, at that picture, it struck me as a symbol not only of our climate crisis, but of the crisis in the social climate and how widespread misuse of, God, of our God-given freedoms are having an equally damaging impact. As John Mark Comer notes in his recent book, Live No Lies, which, by the way, is in our church library, and I recommend it. Something about this freedom seems to have gone awry. Systematic racism is the most evocative example, but there are so many more. Addiction in our nation is widespread, as is compulsive shopping, debt, financial fraud, obesity, alcoholism, and environmental damage. Anything that requires long-term fidelity is currently in decline. Marriage, two-parent families, and so on. He says, we often scratch our head at such realities and think, how could this happen in the land of the free? The reality is that freedom is very easy to abuse. And when we misuse and abuse our God-given freedoms, the air quality, if you will, of our social climate Diminishes with devastating effects on our spiritual and relational health. In Paul's letter to the Galatians that we have been looking at, he warns his readers to be wise in how they use the freedom and liberation that we have been given through Christ's incredible sacrificial love expressed for us on the cross. Remember Galatians 5:1? Those of you who remember it, did you memorize it? It is for freedom. That Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. I think there's another, you've got to work at that again this week. Okay. Well, in Galatians 5.1 that we looked at last week, and I invite you to turn there, as we saw, Paul had two main yokes of slavery in mind. The first one that he was trying to guard against them was the religious yoke of slavery, which I described as merit-based systems, both religious and secular. And that's as much as video games to performance, that it's, all, it's mainly about us and our ability to achieve. And the other yoke that Paul works to guard his readers against in the second half of Galatians 5 is a misguided freedom that thinks you can do whatever you want. So he's guarding on one hand against legal, legalistic bondage, all rule-based, merit and performance-based, and a a license to do whatever you want. So legalism and license. Well, then, Paul, how should we live with our God-given freedom? And his answer is in Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 to the end of the chapter. Let's read that. So I say, walk by the Spirit, And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, that Paul is talking about basically two ways to live. One is what he describes as walking by the Spirit, and the other is gratifying the desires of the flesh. They are not only categorically different, they are, he says, in conflict with each other. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. In other words, the Christian life is a battle, a war, A battle over God's will. And the combatants in the Christian uh, conflict are called flesh and the spirit. And they're not out there, just they're in here. But what does Paul mean by each of these? Flesh or sinful nature, or there's other uh, translations, has a wide range of meanings. But when it is used in the New Testament as something opposed to the spirit then it is always referring to our our fallen human nature. Uh, One commentator called it the the sin-desiring aspect of our whole being opposed to the God-desiring aspect. Or another said, it is that self-seeking element in our human nature, which, if left unchecked, produces the works of the flesh that Paul lists in verses 19 and following. Translators often capitalize the word Spirit with a capital S because here Paul is referring to the Spirit of the living God, the Holy Spirit that he has given to all who repent of their sinful, self-centered life and invite the Lord to be the controlling center of our lives. And then God moves in. He takes up residence in us by his Holy Spirit uh, you ever see a sign in a restaurant under new ownership or under new management? You know, Paul is saying, that's it. You know, we're under new ownership, under new management when the Spirit comes and takes over. And the, the old owner, the flesh, and the new owner, the Spirit, they are opposites. And they are, as one person described it, in irreconcilable antagonism. Now, some Christians throughout history have thought and taught that real Christians have no inner conflict, no ongoing civil war within them if they have truly put their faith in Christ and declared their personal and public allegiance to him through baptism. Paul is clear, I think you can tell, that this is not the case. Mm-mm. The normal Christian life is an ongoing battle. Now, certainly As we learn to walk in the Spirit, the flesh becomes increasingly subdued. You know, the the tide, if you will, turns in the war. But the flesh and the Spirit both remain. And the conflict between them is fierce and ongoing until we die. And are set free once and for all from the very presence of sin itself. But that day and time has not yet come, has it? And so we need to learn how to live a life of freedom in the spirit against the flesh so that we do not do whatever we want, which is very counterculture in a, in a world that says, do whatever you want. It's the mantra. It's what freedom is. As the pop icon Billie Eilish said in an interview for Vogue, my thing is that I can do whatever I want. It's all about what makes you feel good. But just because something makes you feel good now doesn't mean it is good. To be fair, those who advocate advocate for the "just do as you, what you feel is good," philosophy often add, as long as it doesn't harm anyone, right? But the problem with that qualifier, as long as it doesn't harm anyone, is that we have to agree upon the definition of what harm is or isn't. Which we definitely don't agree on in our culture, since every person is supposed to be their own moral authority, right? And uh, in the absence of any transcendent moral authority, such as God or the Bible, the appeal to the state to step in and and adjudicate and fill this role of final authority is definitely on the rise. and And the state is eager to fill this role. And it is clear from various protests playing out in our society today that our definitions of harm are often contradictory. I was watching uh, on the news this week uh, in New Brunswick, protests between those in schools wanting parental authority to be upheld and those wanting the right to bypass parental authority. Well, those are different definitions of harm or what the right path is. And Paul is clear the differences between living in the flesh and living in the spirit are demonstrable. You can see the evidence. The activities, the actions of the flesh, he says, are obvious. He says in verse 19, and he he proceeds to give an illustrative, not an exhaustive list, but an illustrative list that can be divided into four areas. Sex, religion, society, and drink. First, the the realm of of sex. He uses three terms. Sexual immorality, which is sex between unmarried people. That's the broadest term that's used in the the Bible. But it may refer to any kind of unlawful sexual relations. Think hooking up culture today. Impurity, unnatural sexual practices and, and relationships. And, uh, and debauchery, which is basically totally uncontrolled sexuality. Sexuality without limits or borders. Do we see any of that? And religion. Paul says idolatry and witchcraft, which are both offenses against God. And idolatry being the blatant worship of other gods. It's actually any substitute for... For the living God. Often we try to make good things ultimate things, though it becomes idols. And then uh, witchcraft or sorcery, in some translations, is the secret manipulation of powers. Or we might think of it: it's it's faking the work of the Holy Spirit. There are many things that are fit under the banner of spiritual practices, even the occult in our day. These are all faking, uh, you know, trying to fake what the Spirit does. And the third category, society. Paul uses eight words to describe how the flesh destroys relationships. Four of these are destructive attitudes, and the four are the actions from them. The, the attitudes um, are like selfish ambition. It's, it's the competitive self-seeking element in us. Envy, or the, it's another word for coveting what others have. Jealousy. Now, usually that is driven by ego and, of course, hatred. Hatred of being hostile and adversarial. And the results, the actions that come from these attitudes are, of course, discord. You know, being argumentative and picking fights. That's what results. Fits of rage or outbursts of, of anger. Uh, dissensions, you know, divisions between people. Party strife, we might say and factions that means now it's become permanent party strifes you know in warring groups and one side holds up a certain picket you know sign and the other the other side and and now it becomes conflict and warfare well and then fourthly paul talks about the area of drink drunkenness orgies in this case is the word for drinking orgies and and the like in other words one of the works of the flesh of of our disordered desires is addiction to pleasure-seeking substances and behaviors. These are four typical areas uh, for problems of excess. Are they not? This is 2,000 years ago, Paul was writing, and it is just as relevant. The third area that Paul highlights, you know, he's got the most on it, probably because... He focuses on that area here in his letter to the Galatians because the social and relational sins that their disordered actions are having the effect. You know, don't bite and devour one another. It's a dog-eat-dog world it's become in there. That's probably why he is highlighting that one here. It's illustrative, especially in their context. And Paul has a stark warning in verse 21 that those who live like this, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Who live like this. The word in Greek, praso, It's, a, it's a, a regular habitual practice. It's not an isolated lapse. This is a, you've made it, this is a pattern of life. And since God's kingdom, life in God's kingdom, if you were to be able to, you know, is, it is marked by godliness righteousness and self-control. And those who indulge in the works of the flesh will be excluded from it. Basically, Paul is saying, if you live like the devil, then that's where you'll end up. Now, it is worth noting that this list of sins includes some that are more characteristic of religious people and some of non-religious or un-Christian people. You see, God doesn't have a list of these are acceptable sins and these are unacceptable sins. Notice he doesn't have that. He puts them all into this category. Whichever sins are present in us, he's saying need to be driven out of our lives. Which brings us to what the Spirit wants to fill our lives with, not just to leave a void. And Paul's list of the fruits of the Spirit in verses 22 to 23, I think it is also illustrative. It's not exhaustive. Uh, John Stott, uh, he calls it a cluster of nine Christian graces which seem to portray a Christian's attitude to God, to other people, and to oneself. Uh, Let's look at the triad. The first, love, joy, peace. This is a triad of general Christian virtues. And yet I think John Stott is correct in suggesting that they, they seem primar- primarily to concern our attitude to God. Because our first love is to be for God. Our highest joy is joy in the Lord. And our deepest peace is peace with God. Love, joy, peace. This is a, a regular, uh, you know, grouping together in the new testament this is what life in the spirit and life with god is like and patience or forbearance and kindness and goodness these are what we call social virtues relational fruits patience um, some translations have long suffering I, I like that one because that's what it, it is, right? Long-suffering to those who aggravate uh, or persecute. I thought, boy, this is, if you're in, any of you in customer service, if you don't have long-suffering, you're not going to make it. And uh, some of us on the other end of customer service should be uh, recognize that. Kindness. We should express kindness. Kindness is being sensitive and genuine rather than manipulative. And goodness, goodness carries with it the idea being of a, like, totally good, a a person of integrity, of goodness. You're the same person in in every situation, you know, or that's what you seek to be. That is is goodness. Remember Jesus, when, uh, when a rich young ruler came up to him and said, good teacher, what must I do to be saved or inherit the kingdom? And Jesus said, why do you call me good? There is only one who is truly good, God. But that is what we we want. That is what we love about God, and that's what we want to be like. And then the third triad, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These appear to be Christian character. You know, this is the way that God wants us to be. Faithfulness, it's reliability. Gentleness. I think it's the confident humility which Christ exhibited and which made him so attractive and inviting. It wasn't this weakness, but it was was a gentleness to it, to him. And, of course, the all-important virtue of self-control. The ability to control oneself without the need to feel in control or to be in control. (laughs) Uh, Now, I think that is a challenge. That's what self-control, it really is. And when we look at this cluster of the fruit of the Spirit, especially when we compare to what Paul has said, you know, the the acts of the flesh, what a contrast. You know, I don't know if you, when you go shopping, you know, I'm picking through the fruit. I'm looking for the best fruit, right? And it's like, oh, that bag of grapes, there's some mold that's set into there. It's like, no, I'm not going to want that one. Paul says, like, apply that way of thinking to life. And when you see the fruit, the, what results from either feeding the desires of the flesh or feeding the God desires that the Spirit is having in us, like, which do you want? Which outcome and way of life? You see, there is nothing, he says, in the fruit of the Spirit that needs to be restrained or stopped. That's why he says, you know, against this, there is no law oh, you're being too good. Oh, you're being too faithful. You're being too gentle. He's like, no, (laughs) like, who's going to do that? So how do we grow then this kind of fruit in our lives? And the brief answer is we must maintain the proper Christian attitude toward each other, which for Paul said towards each of these, in which Paul says, okay, when it comes to the flesh, crucify it. And when it comes to the Spirit, walk. Be led by the Spirit. Now, crucify the flesh. Literally, that means impale on a cross. That is rather dramatic, isn't it? And he says, this is something we must do. A deliberate putting to death. And Paul is here borrowing, of course, the language and imagery that Christ himself used in Mark chapter 8, verse 34 Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. To take up the cross was Jesus' vivid metaphor for self-denial. That's what his point was. Stott describes the actions of crucifying our old self. He says, it's pitiless. We need to be pitiless. It's painful, and it's got to be persistent. That's what's involved. Crucifying the the flesh is about strangling sin at the motivational level, rather than simply uh, setting ourselves against sin at the behavior level. This is exactly what Jesus talked about in a sermon on the mount. He said, you know, you have heard said, do not commit adultery. But I just say to you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery. He's saying you've got to deal with sin right at the seed. When it's a seed. When it starts growing, you know, then how are you going to control? How are you going to overcome that? You've got to deal with sin right at its root. And I was, as I was thinking about this, I remember when I came to faith as a, as a teenager, I didn't realize how much anger I had in my life. And how quickly I would get angry. And I remember one of the things that God used was uh, Colossians 3, I can't remember exactly, 3 verse 8. It says there, But now you must rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. And, uh, and, he, and he goes on, But I needed, I needed I, as you know, I memorized the, that verse because I needed that verse. And in that moment, you know, he said, you know, uh, I needed, but now you must rid yourself of all such things as these. You got to get rid of that anger, rage, malice, slander. And, And God used that over time. Or for others, it might be the root of bitterness. You know, in these things, Jesus said, take up your cross daily and follow me. Sometimes we need to get at the root of the lie that we are buying into. What God wants this and sometimes we need to think about what God wants this desire to lead me to instead. Is there a higher desire? Am I aiming too low? And uh, a, a quote from the great writer C.S. Lewis, I have found this very helpful as well. Shocking when I first came across it, I remember. It would seem, he said, that our Lord finds our desires not too strong. I'm like, really? But too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud piles in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Which is why we need to learn to keep in step with the Spirit. To trust that He is leading us on to the true fulfillment of our desires. As the Oxford theologian Michael Green said, in this age which values freedom almost more than anything else, Jesus confronts us as the most liberated man who ever lived. I like that. Everything of that, Jesus is the most liberated person who ever lived. And he was spiritual, was he not? More spiritual than anyone Spiritual formation is a positive process. It's not just giving up things, right? It's also an active process requiring our involvement and and action. And it often includes a mission a mission, saying or doing something that the Spirit is prompting us to say or do. And as our leader, the Holy Spirit, takes the initiative, He makes His desires known sometimes as a a deeper longing or a greater appeal, and sometimes with a gentle nudge or prompt. And we must yield and surrender to his leading and control day by day. It's a life of surrender. I want to invite the the worship team to come up. And as they're coming up, uh, your homework for the week is to practice a posture of surrender. And we're going to do that i going to invite you to do that in prayer. I remember one speaker saying he woke up every morning and the first thing he did when he, got out of, when he, when he woke up in his bed was he put his hands up. I surrender. <laughs> he said, I need to surrender the rest of the day. Uh, you can do that or you can just open up your hands. I invite you to do that as we pray together that you would surrender maybe for the first time or again of your life into Jesus' hands, into the Spirit's leading. Let us pray. Oh, living God, we thank you that you are the one who came to seek us out. You came, Lord Jesus, you said to seek and to save those who are lost. And you said, I've come that you might be free. Free from the bondages of legalism, Of merit-based systems but also free from being from the addictions that our own self-centered being thinks is best but leads to slavery Lord we want to surrender to you each day we want to be led by your spirit day by day to keep in step with your spirit Lord that we would be tuned in with our hearts and our minds And Lord, that we, whether it is big or small, that our answer to you would be yes, Lord, yes. To your will and to your way. Amen. We're going to respond.